0: at and Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news, conducted by at and data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com.
1: So Matt, someone found a backdoor for EventStream. Did you want to discuss that? They didn't find a backdoor for EventStream. They put one in oh, EventStream. Stream. perfect. Yeah. So EventStream was
0: a, a popular Node.js package. Um, and someone had been maintaining it for a while, decided they were tired of maintaining it, because it is a lot of work to maintain an open source tool like that, and then they gave it off to somebody who expressed interest. This person, over time on several commits, added a backdoor into it, which would look for the use of a certain Bitcoin wallet from a company called Copay, and would then steal the information needed to access that wallet. And this is this package, um, EventStream, was actually downloaded by like a million different people, well, no, two million times over its lifetime, according to the stats. So this is quite interesting, um, mostly because it raises the question of, the, of stewardship of open source code. Because for a long time, people have argued that open source code is inherently more secure because there are more eyeballs looking at it.
2: Even though it is touted as you know, being fairly secure in the sense that you have a lot of people sort of crowdsourcing you know, the, the code, um, there is still an opportunity for things to
0: go wrong and, and get hacked.
1: Do so, you think the jig is up? It's been fixed? and Yes, so yeah. that
0: is the, the case. Uh, the, the code has been fixed, the affected package has been pulled, so if you're somebody using this code, it's time for you to go and update, and the newest version of that package should be clean. Did it say anywhere
2: in the article how many times it's actually been downloaded uh, since
0: it was discovered, they did not say that. No. Okay. Uh, it does sound like the impact is fairly limited. I mean, if the, the company that makes this Bitcoin wallet said that effectively they were able to discover it before uh, the latest release came out, so that's one thing. Okay. Uh, and if you weren't explicitly running this this wallet, you shouldn't be affected at all. So it seemed relatively targeted. Uh, if you want a good analysis of the code, the the GitHub. Uh, History actually has a very good description and discussion of what this was all about. Um, they talk about, some people will throw in and say, here's what I think this code is doing. Um, it's a little bit interesting because the the compromised module, the first thing they did was they made a reference to another, a secondary module, was added to it. So some external code is being called, but that external code, which is obfuscated, is what's actually pulling off the uh, the heist. Okay, And that was, kind of interesting to look at as well but a little more technical than we usually go into detail on this show
2: right yeah no i think the you know i think the the biggest point here is that you know obviously you've got something that's sitting in open source which it, as you said before is supposed to sort of limit the Potential exposure for this because you have an open source community that is technically supposed to have eyes on it Mm -hmm. at all times, right? So as soon as somebody makes a change to it, somebody else is going to take a look at it and say, "Hey, wait, what's what's going on here?" So, you know. But clearly, there there's going to be times when there are, are these windows where code gets inserted and you might not have somebody who takes a look at it, right? It's because almost like
1: case. it's almost like an insider threat kind of thing where... Yeah, I would say you know, so. I mean, this if there's an insider who, like you said, controlled the software, purposely put this back door and maybe even targeted at somebody who we knew was using that wallet, you know?
0: It's possible. So It, it suggests that they knew a significant amount about that, the way that the wallet worked yeah. in order for that to happen. right? So I think that the upshot of this is if you are maintaining an open source product, The the onus is kind of on you to make sure that all the changes that are are presented to you, uh, that you choose to add to the product, are properly vetted. And also to understand that not everyone in the community, and and that's one of the funny things about open source, is that there's a very much of a a sharing and openness about it. Sometimes you have to sort of look at things with a critical eye and say, is the person I'm handing off my project to going to be a good steward to it? And if you can't answer that question affirmatively and resoundingly, then maybe you shouldn't be letting them take it over. Right,
1: yeah. Nothing's 100%, so you know, even though you're using open source, you know, be wary of security flaws, of uh, potential vulnerabilities, and then you know, definitely patch and update any of your software, whether it's open source or a vendor product or homegrown.
0: So Manny, I saw you had an article, and I thought the title was the clickbaitiest thing ever, and then I realized that that's perfect for an article like this. That's right.
2: Yeah, so this one obviously caught my eye. Um, I think it's something that, uh, uh, it's not not something new. We've talked about this sort of topic a lot, um, but it was interesting to read that there's some pretty, I I guess, some pretty heavy-duty Research being done uh, on the back end of this to figure out who these who these people are that continually click on you know these phishing campaigns, these phishing emails, phishing you know whatever texts that that, uh, that are coming out that uh, we see continually. Um, and there's this research, and there's a which is interesting to me. There's just Institute of Simulation and Training. Um, at the University of Central Florida, where they're talking about um, where this, where this uh, researcher is doing research on spearfishing and uh, uh, human hacking, they call it, uh, and online influence. So social engineering? Pretty much, okay. yeah. Uh,
1: it kind of took a sociological look at why certain individuals are more likely, you know, folks who are less familiar with, uh, security practices, who are not reminded as frequently, who haven't been trained. The people who tend to click on this stuff
2: are the folks who, in essence, are not exposed to this type of activity. So they're the ones who don't necessarily have the mindset to think like a bad guy. Okay. So what, what they were trying to associate to is, you know, as, as when you're your kid, <coughs> Your parents teach you that when you're going to cross the street, you got to look left and look right before you cross the street. They equate that to this in terms of teaching people how to spot this stuff. So the same way that you, you know, when, before you step off that curb, you're always going to look because you just been it's just been ingrained in you that you just have to do this. That the way to get around this is to ingrain this always being cautious that same cautiousness that when you step is that is that same cautiousness when you're reading that email or looking at that next text message and deciding hmm that link should I click on it right i should i should always have that pause where i'm thinking you know did, did i look left and right, right before right, right, right. i click this or not i think that the the biggest tip here is is that you have to have security awareness i mean security awareness i think is at the core of this the article does talk about sort of the way in which security training needs to happen, and so what they're saying is, is in essence, more carrot, less stick, okay. which is interesting. So they're saying, because a lot of times when you talk about, um, like, uh, you know, doing tests for uh, for phishing, you know, within a company, a lot of times it's hey. We send out this test yeah. email. Joe, you clicked on it. You shouldn't have done that. We're going to send you to, you know, two hours of training, oh, yeah. right? And oh, you're on a
1: list. Yeah. Yeah.
2: There is the notion of, hey, look, we're all learning how to do this. Yeah, I understand you clicked, but you know, here's here's a better way to look at this, or you know, hey, you clicked, but at least you realized that you made the mistake and then you reported it it also says, and I'm sure we've talked about this as well, is to be targeted with your training. So if you've got folks that are in billing, and you know that they're going to be receiving things that look like bills or something in the, you know, in their email. Then
0: those are the fishes you should send? Those are
2: the fishies that they should be sent, right? So and if HR you're- HR should
0: be getting loaded Word documents that appear to be-
2: Exactly. Resumes they didn't ask for. Exactly. Okay. So, um, you know, it does It does get further into sort of like how much training is enough training. And they're saying, it actually says here that once per month seems to be the sweet spot for tra- security training.
1: Right, but I mean, also, if you think about some of the stuff we've done with our enterprise, you know, uh, gamification, our, our security awareness team is pretty sharp. You know, they've right. kind of made it fun. They, you know, send T-shirts to winners who've done certain competitions, you know, and it's, you know, security becomes something that all employees are aware of, even if they're not realizing it's security, because, you know, they see it when they log in that says, you know, you need to be aware of what you click on, think before you click, and all the, the advertising campaigns. So. It feels like what we've done pretty much complies. I'd say we're doing more than monthly, but maybe monthly is the actual training, (laughs) not just the reminders and awareness things. Right, exactly.
0: I think the lesson that we take away from this is that it is possible to teach people to not click on things. Just give them more exposure, maybe at a younger age, to what is possible on the internet, what kinds of things people might try and do to you. And with that knowledge in mind, they'd be better prepared to defend themselves.
2: So Joe, looks like uh, Mirai is never going to die, right? Um, It looks like it's uh, targeting Linux servers now? Yeah.
1: So we're seeing uh, a vulnerability with uh, Yarn, which is Hadoop's um, orchestrator um, that's allowing attackers to to get a, a Mirai variant payload onto unpatched Linux servers. So basically, the REST API that Yarn uses has a known uh, command injection vulnerability, and that's being used to uh, attack these Linux servers through the, the Yarn interface and uh, install Mirai payloads. So whether it's you know VPN filter, some some variant of the Mirai payload, and then. Uh, It's a little unique, Uh, you know, it's unique because it's not an IoT device. So this is sort of a a way of
0: creating a more powerful Mirai node that has the ability to scan faster. Uh, It doesn't actually appear to infect other nodes, but it reports scanning results back to somebody else who I can only assume is using it for further infection.
1: It's also doing a unique thing where it's not worming. You know, Mirai we're used to it getting one IoT device and that IoT device starts looking on telnet for um, you know the next bot to recruit, but this actually uh, it's installed by the attacker themselves so you know the research from NetScout they found that uh, in their uh, honeypot that only a small number of sources were actually found looking for this vulnerability so um, probably the the way they they see it is that the um, the attackers were installing it and and then pulling back the information for the vulnerable server and then it would do a full install from the source so not worming out like you know typical IOT botnet would. And you and I
0: looked at the, uh, the flows that we have for this particular report, this, uh, this yarn yeah, and it doesn't seem like there's very many sources. In fact, maybe a handful, maybe like five at the most. Yeah,
1: that's, that's what we what we see there. Um, the researchers saw it. It started in September, so the original attack vector, the command line injection or command injection, um, you know, it scroll. It scaled up to like 70 sources, but nothing, you know, in the scale that we're usually seeing. Right, and when you see Mirai, typically when it worms out, it
0: starts going up exponentially as more right. and more boxes get infected.
1: You know, a Linux server Mirai bot is a lot more powerful than an IoT device Mirai bot. So, you know, the the possibility of a server-strength Mirai botnet is pretty intimidating.
0: And typically when we're talking about servers, you know, if it's in a server farm somewhere, you, they've got access to more bandwidth than, say, your average home DVR
1: or router or something like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I mean, you would hope, I mean, one thing we always talk about IoT devices is, is they're less you know, known, right? You know, your refrigerator, nobody's logging into your refrigerator every day. I'm
0: logging into your refrigerator (laughs) I don't know what you're talking
1: about. But, you know, a, a Linux server, a Hadoop cluster, and hopefully you would say there's a little more oversight. You know, there's an administrator for the cluster. There's maybe some probing, alarming, alerting on... So you know, you'd hope that would limit the exposure. That maybe these aren't going to be bots that live as long as an IoT device, who may never get patched, right? That's a good point. So um, you know, it's probably a more powerful bot, but it may be a a, a less you know sneaky bot. So. so if
2: there's no if there's no propagation on this, then this is more targeted.
0: It sounds like from what you said that this particular version of Mirai is being spread through the, the yarn vulnerability, getting installed on an x86 server, but then going ahead and sending out, trying to brute force on Telnet. So right. it itself is spreading, what, the original version of Mirai an earlier one that is still IoT? Uh,
1: I think it's going from this Linux server and then out to other Linux servers.
0: OK. So, so it, then it is kind of still worming.
1: So it is still but Except right. it's using
0: a different mechanism than the original But I th-
1: It doesn't. It goes and looks for it and then reports it back. It doesn't do So, the it's install. only for scanning. Oh, so, there may sir. other be pro- other
0: propagation going on, but just not from this guy.
1: Well, it's it's propagating the information and then reporting back, but so all the, the installation still comes from... the
0: bot commander would have to
2: make a decision on whether the bot actually takes over the next server. Right.
0: That or it may be happening out of, out of band of the server entirely. Right. Just yeah. reporting the scan results and somebody else is popping it. The other thing to mention that I think is important here is that Mirai, the source code was was released. Right. So that's when we talk about Mirai, we're not necessarily talking about the same actors every single time. Yep. We could be talking about completely different oh, folks yeah. every single time.
1: Yeah. But, I
0: mean, but, but that's also a reason we probably see so many interesting variants of it is because everybody is trying to customize it to their own needs. Yeah, it seems
2: like every, what, at least once a month we're probably talking about on this show another the newest variant out there. Mirai, or
0: Satori, or, or something yeah. else with a different name, yeah.
2: Patching is, is key with, it, with these types of uh, botnets, yeah. is that you, you, you have to ensure that your Linux server A is, is patched you know, to the latest revisions, and then ensuring that if you have a Linux server, if it doesn't have to be exposed to the internet, that it shouldn't be.
0: So let's talk about the internet weather for this week. So the top 10 most probed ports at the top of the list, as usual, is 23TCP, that's Telnet. 445 and 22 have actually swapped spaces for second and third, and that is uh, SMB and SSH. Fourth place, we have 3389, that's up two, and that is Remote Desktop Protocol. I've been seeing scanning for that since Remote Desktop Protocol was a thing. 81TCP, uh, I believe, is related to a specific phone for one of those IoT devices. It escapes me at the moment. Uh, 1433 is uh, MS SQL, Microsoft SQL Server. 80ICMP is just ping, so someone out there is pinging a whole lot of stuff. 21TCP is FTP, it's up two. 3306TCP is MySQL Server, that's up three spots. And then 80TCP is at number 10, and that's also up three spots. So talking about the most sources probing, and this is sheer number of sources and not volume of scanning, uh, 445, 23, and 8080 are still at the top from last week. Uh, and that, again, we've talked about SMB, Telnet, and then another one of those web ports. 80TCP um, is another web port, obviously, it's up to I- 80ICMP is Ping. 5555 is Android Debug Bridge, which we've seen on a lot of Android devices that are connected to the internet. Uh, some people will use this as a way of putting on uh, software, getting past the usual. Um, is installed on the vanilla device. Sometimes you see this like Android Fire TV devices. Uh, 6881, I believe, is uh, BitTorrent. Uh, 81TCP is another web port. Again, we talked about that. It's one of those uh, IoT devices. 161 UDP is, interestingly, up 30 spots. That is SNMP, and we'll take a look at that. And then 53 UDP is actually up 10 spots, and that's DNS. So we'll take a look at that as well.
2: I, I think for a little while, it's been pretty um, steady in terms of the
0: uh, top uh, ports. Uh, but we are seeing some interesting things at the lower end of that, of that table. So 445 has been slowly trending downwards over the last 90 days or so in terms of scan sources. Um, it was interesting because for at least a year when we had WannaCry, this was conti- consistently climbing upwards. Uh, so either the infected machines are slowly being cleaned up or someone is not seeing as much value in this uh, attack vector anymore. It's just kind of interesting um, that it's slowly coming off. Uh, 23TCP telnet, number of scan flows. We've had some spikes recently in the last couple of days. Uh, The sources for those are one in China and two in Poland. Um, Other than that, we don't know too much about them, except that they are fairly uh, interested in in scanning for a 23TCP. Uh, 161 UDP, SNMP, which I mentioned before, was up 30 spots in the last uh, couple of days, although it is not the first time that it's spiked like this, and you can see relative to other spikes that we've seen in the last 30 days, uh, it's actually a fairly small spike. Uh, most of these sources are in a US-known hosting provider, like a cloud provider, VPS type, and then in the Netherlands. So interesting, and there are actually much bigger spikes for SNMP if you go back further in history. Same goes for port 53 UDP, which is DNS. You can see a significant spike here relative to the last 30 days, but if you go back 120, 180 maybe, you will see even bigger ones. So this this is big uh, for us, but not really uh, big for the history of the Internet.
1: With our view of the Internet, we can see what might look like a trend for the last 30 days. If we go back six months, a year, two years, we can say, okay, this maybe isn't quite as out of the norm as we might think. Uh, I want to take a look at MS SQL. I've talked about it nearly
0: every week these days, and I kind of wanted to understand what the benefit of scanning for an MS SQL Server would be. So I found a blog post from 2017. um, And funny enough, they're talking about Mirai on Windows. Yeah. So it turns out that there was a Windows variant of Mirai, and what they were doing was scanning for MS SQL Server. Trying to log in as admin, if they could get that far, they would create a new user with the sysadmin privs on the box, and from there, they basically own the box. So this is a likely scenario for what the scanning is for. I mean, if you can compromise a box through the database, sure, why not? Uh, The sources today are primarily from China. I really can't comment on from 2017 where those sources were from. I don't have that data, Uh, but it does seem to be pretty interesting. You can see there was a spike. Well, maybe a, a large increase, not just a spike, Uh, around the start of this month, around uh, 4.5, 4,500 scan sources, mm, tapering off to about 2,500 scan sources per hour uh, currently. I wanted to revisit these two because I'd covered them on the last time I was on the show. These were both related to the BCM-UPNP Hunter botnet, which is a botnet that would scan for 5431 uh, to identify these specific Broadcom vulnerable devices and then attack them on 1900 UDP. And the real telltale for scanning for the botnet was the 5431, so I revisited that. You can see back here, uh, when we first became aware of this botnet, there was some consistent scanning, uh, 20,000 sources, you know, consistently. It seems like there are much more, uh, there are more sources scanning, but on a, uh, on a, not on a regular basis, more on, a, I would say, a scheduled basis, probably. So someone's still interested in it, but I would, I would almost, I would hazard a guess that these are two completely separate. Um, populations of bots scanning simply because of the way that they've chosen to scan and that's it Excellent. the views expressed on AT&T threat track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity